The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In his verse, wrote Barbara Everett, he, quote, can argue, reflect, joke, gossip, sing, analyze, lecture, hector, and simply talk. He can sound at will like a psychologist on a political platform, like a theologian at a party, or like a geologist in love. He can give dignity and authority to nonsensical theories and make newspaper headlines sound both true and melodious, end quote. She was talking about W.H. Auden, one of the greatest poets of, in English of the 20th century, certainly one of the most famous and influential. He was also an engaged poet who took seriously the concerns of the age, from the influence of Marx and Freud on the collective unconscious to the rise of fascism and the advent of two world wars. We talked to Professor Susanna young Ah Gottlieb, author of Auden and the Muse of History, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Jack Wilson, your host here at The History of Literature. So we have a great topic today, W.H. Auden. We're not doing his full life and works. We'll save that for another time. He's been on our list for several years. I guess since we started, he's one of our favorites here. But today we're going to talk to a professor about her interest in Auden, where it began for her, and how Auden gives us a window into that world from the late 1930s to the late 1950s, let's say, when a poet sought to understand the poet's responsibility in the face of unspeakable horrors, fascism, triumphant, industrialized murder. He was born in 1907, which put him a generation behind some giants of the 20th century, like T.S. Eliot, who was born 19 years ahead of Auden, and a couple of generations behind W.B. Yeats, who was 42 when Auden was born. When Auden was in his early 20s, looking to publish his first book of poetry, T.S. Eliot was there to help, already an established poet working for a publisher who could recognize and admire the younger man's uh, burgeoning greatness. And when Yeats died in 1939, Auden was there, in his early 30s now, and writing a tribute to Yeats in the entire business of poetry. Poetry makes nothing happen, he said, a cry in the darkness on the eve of yet another world war. But was it such a cry of despair? It's often viewed that way. People contrast that line with Shelley, who famously claimed that poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Auden, it seems, is saying the opposite in his poem. Wars happen. Poets don't stop them from breaking out. And soon we would see the greatest test of all, the Holocaust, which poetry did not prevent. But it's also noteworthy that Auden says in the previous line, Ireland has her madness and her weather still. Hmm, poetry hasn't changed the weather. Would we expect it to? This is what poetry does, according to the poem. It survives in the valley of its making where executives would never want to tamper, flows on south from ranches of isolation and the busy griefs, raw towns that we believe and die in. It survives a way of happening, a mouth. You were silly like us, Auden says to Yeats. Your gift survived it all. Follow, poet, follow right to the bottom of the night with your unconstraining voice. Still persuade us to rejoice with the farming of a verse. Make a vineyard of the curse. Sing of human unsuccess in a rapture of distress. In the deserts of the heart, let the healing fountain start. In the prison of his days, teach the free man how to praise. Hmm, so is poetry... Making nothing happen. Is there nothing happening there in what he's calling for the poet to do? Well, I would disagree that it's nothing, but then I'm the kind of person who poetry can reach and does reach. I don't make things happen either. I'm not poetry's vessel. But as long as I'm here, things are happening, and poetry 
is part of the mix. Okay, that's a little preview of Auden. As I said, we'll do a full biography of him another time. Today, we're going to let our guest tell us about Auden's use of history as a muse. But first, let's pull in a little Kafka. We're doing a randomized selection of the gems in the book, Is That Kafka?, in which Kafka's biographer pulled out 99 of these little beauties, polished them up, and put them on display. Our last one, which we did not last episode, but the one before, Kafka tormented by trying to give money to a pair of begging women at different times in his life. That was pretty good. Very revealing of Kafka's particular agonies. Let's see what the gods of randomness give us this time. We plug in 1 through 99 in our Google random number generator. And then, oh, by the way, before I hit the button, the generate button, as always, I'm going to read this. And if it's boring, we'll just skip right over it. So 1 to 99. Here we go. Generate. 65. That is in the illusions section of the book. And it is called... Uncle Franz talks to himself. Hmm. <laughs> okay, let's see how that one goes. We'll take a quick break. I'll read it and report back afterwards. All that plus Auden and Susanna Young Agotlieb after this. Okay, we're back. Well... Here's the thing. Number 65 was not that interesting. A little verse Kafka wrote on a book he gave to his seven-year-old niece. He titled it, Uncle Franz Talks to Himself and said something like, Well, isn't it a shame to give such a beautiful book to Gertie? No, because she's very nice and deserves it. And also, she'll probably forget it here at Uncle Franz's house anyway, and I'll get to keep it. So cute and sweet, but not exactly the Kafka I'm looking for. And so I couldn't help myself. I went ahead and read number 66. Kafka invents the answering machine, and this one was much better. Kafka hated technology. He didn't know how to use it, didn't like it, and especially had concerns that it was going to interfere with his ability to communicate with other humans, or, or maybe a fear that all humans were going to lose the ability to communicate with one another. If you've read The Castle, you've seen this in action. In his short story, The Neighbor... Kafka's story, The Neighbor, the telephone also drives the narrator into an extreme state of anxiety and despair. He thinks his calls are being overheard through the wall. Quote, sometimes I dance around the receiver to my ear, spurred on by my anxiety on my tiptoes, and still cannot prevent my secrets from being given away. End quote. Did he feel that way in real life, too? You probably won't be surprised to hear that yes, he did feel that way. He wrote a letter to his fiance, Felice Bauer, one of his fiancés, Felice Bauer, where he said, hey, they need to combine the telephone with other technology to make it better. First, they could combine it with a dictaphone so you can basically read your calls. They can be uh, printed out for you. That's what a dictaphone was. For those of you who aren't familiar with it, it was a way of recording something so that someone else could type it out. And they, and then he said they could combine it with a gramophone so you could listen to your calls without having to respond to your caller in real time. The hard part for Kafka was trying to decipher the meaning of a caller when he couldn't see that person speaking and the audio quality was not great on those old phone wires. And there was so much built-in ambiguity to the noises, the disembodied voice that was coming at him. Whatever came through to him was, he didn't want to come up with answers on the fly. But here's the most Kafka-esque touch of all. This little princeling of anxiety really comes through here. He says, he says of a combination of a gramophone and telephone, this is where Kafka invents the answering machine. That's where the title comes from. The idea that he, he immediately seized on the idea, well, what we should have is a telephone that then records to a gramophone, which those of you who don't know who a gramophone is, my guess is you probably do know, but it would record things to a disc, like a record player. In the old days, we used to use those. Kafka was all over this. He said, he said, we should combine it, a telephone and a gramophone. And then he said, but then he said, quote, for people like me who are afraid of the telephone, it would be a relief. But then people like me are also afraid of the gramophone, so we can't be helped at all, 
end quote. A perfect little Kafka sentence. That little extra twist of the knife. Afraid of the gramophone. Poor Franz. Okay. Speaking of anxiety and the search for relief, that was Kafka writing a letter in 1913. This, that's the trembling world into which Auden was basically born. He was six at the time in, in when Kafka wrote that letter. In just a few years, World War I would show an even more horrific side of technological advancement. And that would only continue throughout Auden's early years, his teens and 20s. He came of age in the age of anxiety, a phrase he coined, by the way, or at least made famous. Where does one turn for meaning and solace when one is in an age of anxiety? To dreams of utopia? To poetry and what it can do? To the past? Does history have lessons for us? Where does one turn? Susanna Young Gottlieb helps us sort this out after this. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Professor Susanna young Gottlieb, who is Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literary Studies. Her previous works include Regions of Sorrow, Anxiety, and Messianism in Hannah Arendt and W.H. Auden, which she authored, and Hannah Arendt, Reflections of Literature and Culture, which she edited. She's here today to discuss her new book, Auden and the Muse of History. Susanna young Gottlieb, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me. So let's start with Auden and how he came into your life. Were you already a literary scholar when you discovered Auden and, and developed an interest in him, or did you discover him and his poetry earlier than that? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure when he first came to my attention. I always had poetry in my life, or at least since high school, when a couple of amazing English teachers taught poetry in ways that felt vital and meaningful to mm. me at least. Mm -hmm. But I do have a very specific memory of when I first immersed myself in Auden. I had a college friend, my best friend, Ben, who struggled mightily with depression. Mm. And after I graduated, he sent me a, a very sad letter that ended with the last stanza of Auden's September 1, 1939. Mm -hmm. And I was so distressed by how much my friend was hurting and so moved by how precisely resonant Auden's lines seemed that I pulled out Auden's collected poems and read it cover to cover. I, I remember just lying in bed more or less for the entire weekend reading Auden. And after that, I never really stopped reading him. Mm, wow. Was Ben, did that surprise you? Did you know he had that interest in poetry? Did it come out of the blue or did you know that about him? About my friend? Uh, I think that 
probably, I mean, this is quite some years, some number of years ago, but I was interested at least some in Auden and a number of other poets. And I, when we wrote, I think that we would send each other little snippets of, right. of poetry. This was before the internet. <laughs> yeah. My guess would be I sent lullaby uh, or, mm. you know, one of the other lyrics of Auden. So it was, it was just part of the practice between us. Yeah, right. Well, that poem, I mean, it's such a powerful poem and it, it has the yeah. the line. I was thinking I'm looking it up now. I was thinking that it ended with we must love one another or die, but that's actually the penultimate no, stanza. No. Yeah, it goes yeah. on. Mm. Yeah. Maybe I'll yeah. read it just cuz listeners are probably going to wonder if they of hear course. us talking about it. Yeah, defenseless under the night, our world in stupor lies, yet dotted everywhere, ironic points of light flash out wherever the just exchange their messages. May I, composed like them of eros and dust, beleaguered by the same negation and despair, show an affirming flame. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's really, it's very powerful. Ah, Auden. Okay, so (laughs) I haven't, I hadn't really made a connection between him and Hannah Arendt before, other than they they overlapped in time, and and I knew they both had written about the rise of fascism and and had a post war look back at the horrors of Nazism and so on. They're definitely mm-hmm. kind of in the same era. But I was mm-hmm. wondering before we turn to your new book on Auden and history, if you could tell us a little bit about regions of sorrow and what you explored in that book. Yes, of course. Thank you. Um, before I do, I just want to say the connection is not as odd as it might seem. They belong to the same era, but they were also friends. Mm. Uh, they both lived in New York City and they encountered each other here and there during and after the war. And their acquaintance turned into a, a close friendship in the late 50s after Auden read The Human Condition. Mm. And he wrote to Arendt both to express his appreciation and to take issue with something she had written about forgiveness. And so began an exchange of fascinating letters and then dinner invitations, dedications of work to each other, and even more personal interactions. In 1970, after Arendt's husband died, Auden asked her to marry him, which she declined to do. Uh, he, he was gay, of course, and the proposal wasn't romantic, but one of you know, friendship and a desire for companionship. At, at that point, Auden's life partner, Chester Coleman, had by that time moved to Greece during most of the year with his long-term lover, and Auden was very alone. And in a letter, sort of just to kind of round it out, in a letter that Arendt wrote to Mary McCarthy after Auden's death, her sadness is really palpable when she says she can't stop thinking of Whiston and mm. how she refused to take him in when he came to ask for shelter. Mm. So it, there's a, an intense and interesting personal history between the two of them. But Regions of Sorrow, my focus in that book isn't their biography, but it is what I see as a a deep affinity, Mm -hmm. an intellectual affinity, I suppose, but describing it that way suggests something that seems more abstract and less human than what I sought to capture in that book. Auden wrote a review of the human condition after he wrote to RN, where he said, uh, and this is printed as a blurb to this day on the back of that book, he wrote, Every now and then I come across a book which gives me the impression of having been especially written for me. This book belongs to this very small class, something like that. Mm-hmm. And and something of that very deep affinity, the, the feeling that something has been written especially for you is, is what yeah. I pursue in the book, especially as it relates to the ways in which, you know, as you suggested, both Auden and Arendt tried to develop responses to the catastrophic enormity of the phenomena of their times was, yeah. you know, Arendt memorably cataloged as homelessness on an unprecedented scale, rootlessness to an unprecedented depth and forces that look like sheer insanity. Mm-hmm. So that that's what that book <laughs> investigates. Yeah. And Auden's what yeah. he called anxious hope. Yes. 
Yes, exactly. An age of anxiety. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, it. I don't know if Auden was the last one. It feels almost like he's a, a throwback to another era where poets were taken seriously by philosophers and and cultural critics yeah. and, and psychiatrists. It, it seems like today we've gotten into a, a mode where poetry is viewed as important for personal expression or for uh, what right. it has to say about you know being uh, being alive and being part of different groups and categories and so on. But the sort of the idea of a poet as as needing to wrestle with uh, politics and culture and and big yeah. picture items and so on, it's hard to imagine that you know the equivalent of a Hannah Arendt today would be turning to a poet to sort of exchange ideas. Right. And she quotes his, her last work, The Life of the Mind, which was published posthumously and only in its fragmentary form. It quotes his poetry throughout, begins with an epigraph from him. She begins many of her essays with quotations from Auden. Mm. Yeah, no, very, very, very deep and, and important thinker for her, too. Yeah. Okay, so you finished that book, and that has been out for a while. Did you have the the seedlings for this new book when you were working on that one? Is this the things that you didn't have a chance to cover, or or did you have a new interest, new idea these years later and say, I've got another idea, and I can go back to Auden for it? Yeah, more of the first. Um, mm. This new book is certainly, in some sense, a natural progression, mm -hmm. and Yes, it was definitely more that I wanted to say about Auden than I was able to discuss in Regions of Sorrow. And that's true even now, having finished a book devoted entirely to him. That's one of the things about writing, or it's my experience anyway, that as you write, the line of argument demands that you go in certain directions. Mm -hmm. And so I have hundreds of pages of discarded <laughs> material, which I trashed. Not because they weren't worth pursuing, but because they didn't fit the through line for the book. This is something that I discuss with my graduate students all the time. You can't be precious about your writing. Yeah. Um, and, right. you know, save it, put it in a file somewhere, but pursue the line of argument where it needs to go and don't try to fit everything that interests you into this because it's not the last thing you'll ever write unless of course you try to fit everything into it and then you yeah. <laughs> will write something unsuccessful and it might be the last thing yeah write. yeah well i heard of a story once of of woody allen going into the new yorker offices when he was writing humor pieces for them and and an editor said uh -huh. you know i think the problem with this is it has too many jokes and he was saying, right. you know, it, it, it doesn't breathe and the, the readers, it, it hits a point of diminishing returns for the readers. And Woody Allen just right. looked at him and said, too many jokes. Like, I, it's a humor piece. You know, how could you have too many jokes? And and uh, it almost seems like I could imagine your, your graduate student saying to you, like, too many ideas or too much research. Right. How could there possibly be too much right. research in my dissertation? Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, your new book, the topic uh -huh. of it seems particularly relevant today. I'm wondering if if anything that's happened in the past few years has inspired you to return to the subject. And in particular, I'm just thinking a lot of the lessons that seem like they have been learned in the 1930s to 1950s feel like there's a, a big part of the populace who needs to relearn those ideas. Right. Yeah, for sure. For me, he's never ceased to have something to say that seems worth listening to. Mm, right. And part of the depth and enduring appeal of Auden is, to my mind, his unexpected topicality, which yeah. is why he continues to have so many appreciative readers and why year after year and so many years after his death, you hear him quoted in, in really unexpected places, right? You know, so from the widespread circulation of his poetry after the September 11 attacks on the World Trade Center, which makes sense, of course, but then also to Madonna quoting him on stage at the Women's March in 2017. Yeah. What in his work emerges as topical changes, but it's his incredible thoughtfulness, you know, the care, depth, 
and sobriety of his thinking together with the sheer strength and just shimmering talent, poetic talent that allows his work to seem to speak with such clarity to our particular moment, whatever that moment might be. And of course, the matters that occupied him haven't disappeared, right? People continue to feel the sting of the infinite varieties of love and loss. Fascist politicians still lie and lie and lie. Yeah, right. (laughs) Have not gone away. Yeah. And he, Hannah Arendt, it seems like, saw this as well, that Okay, the Nazis are yes, gone, and sure. and we can see who won and who lost, and and we can see that they're no longer in charge and all of that. But that doesn't mean that the impulse, the human impulse that exactly. that led to that, is forever gone. And in fact, it probably yeah. still exists, and it will probably return. Very much so. Very much so. Exactly. Mm. Okay, so you start your book with. Uh, Poetry's Role in Defending Language Against the Big Lie, capital B, capital L, which we use that term a lot of Americans today to talk about the claims of a stolen presidential election. But Auden had something different in mind, slightly different. So what was the big lie for Auden? Well, the big lie for Auden was, of course, Hitler and Goebbels' big lie that international Jewry was intent on the annihilation of Western Christendom and Jews secretly controlled the Allied powers, the banks, and so on. And mm. It was on the basis of this big lie that the Nazis justified the industrialized murder of millions of Jews. And as you rightly point out, Arendt's theory of fascism is closely connected to her understanding of ideology and the big lie, which is another important point of connection between the two of them. Yeah. And the idea that civilization must be saved by state-sanctioned violence. Yeah. Right. Okay. So False. what right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. what interests what interests me about that too is that poetry's role was was not just changing hearts and minds or something, but defending language, which sounds almost yes. like George right. Orwell and, and talking about politics in the English language. Yeah. But what did he think poetry was it an obligation or was it just his own personal obligation or did he believe that poetry had to get in the fray or was he doing this reluctantly thinking, I wish I could just write love poems or how did he view his own role in history? Yeah. Wow. That's a huge question. So uh, let me, let me see if I can address that. You are, I think, alluding to a quote of his, I don't remember where it's from, where he says that, um, the duty of a poet as a citizen is to defend language because if language is corrupted, thought is corrupted. Mm. Uh, I think that's where you started. Yeah. And we see how this is the case in so many ways. The big lie, of course, the manipulative deployment of language in ways that have real political consequences is something that we see everywhere. I talk about this in lots of different contexts and classes that I teach both in poetry, when I talk about diction, you know, when I teach Asian American literature and culture courses, when I talk about Japanese internment, you know, what happens when we call someone the same person, either an American citizen or an enemy alien, right? Mm. In the first case, the person has rights and is entitled to protections. In the other, the person can be stripped of freedom, property, and livelihood and sent to a guarded camp to live in abandoned cattle stables, right? So the the defense of language is something that has real-world political consequences. As for the second part of your question, was he reluctant? Did he think of it as a duty? It was a duty, but a freely taken up duty. Mm. Otherwise, it wouldn't be fulfilling the obligation that it has, right? If it's just a necessity, then it's not a matter of personal responsibility or decision making. Mm-hmm. So you have to want to have your poetry address that rather than feel like, well, there's a war going on, so I better write about these topics. I think that the clarifying dimension of poetry doesn't necessarily have to be tied to the subject matter being political. Mm -hmm. So it's not that he chooses necessarily to write a poem about Japanese war or uh, 
right. whatever else he might be writing about. Instead, it's that the language itself creates a, let's say, an imaginative world, a secondary world, as he called it, drawing on Tolkien, in which we can, you know, move through say, a different temporality based on the rhythms of the poem and through a different realm that moves and claims us and affects the ways that we think about, say, good and evil, not to you know, use too yeah. grandiose a vocabulary, but in ways that interrupt our unthinking kind of daily movements through our lives. Right. And he turned in particular to history. Yes. And mm-hmm. why why turn to history as opposed to contemporary events or observations or myths or, you know, something like that? Why was he so interested in history? What did he think that would do for him in his poetry? History fits into his conception of what he's doing in his poetry because history just simply is reality. Mm. And reality kind of divested of all of the kind of metaphysical baggage, the philosophical ontological conundrums that we associate with like the nature of reality, right? History for him is every small single event, right? Every event is historical, is reality. Auden calls Cleo the muse of the unique historical fact, right? Mm. And about her, he writes... You know, I've seen your photo, I think, in the papers, nursing a baby or mourning a corpse, right? So these kinds of questions, larger philosophical questions about reality are subordinated for Auden to responsibility for and to reality as it occurs in singular events, right? And that's history. Something Mm -hmm. happens. Occasional poems are all historical. Freud died. That's history. His sister-in-law got married. That's history. A, war- a woman is nursing her baby. That's that's history. Mm. So yes, the turn is to history, but it's it's not history with a capital H. Right. Right. It's not monumental history. It's- so he's not saying let's look at the line of kings necessarily right. any more exactly. than anything else. It's almost more like when we talked about him believing that there was a role in defending language. It almost seems like he's defending facts. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. To say, this is what happened. This is true. Again, that resonates today when we're sort of in this age of gaslighting, where it's like uh, trying to sort of argue over things that may or may not be reality. We can't always agree on what reality is. Mm. Okay, well, let's take a quick break and then come back with Auden's ideas of the power of poetry. Great. Okay, we're back with Professor Susanna Young Gottlieb. So Auden famously wrote, poetry makes nothing happen. And elsewhere, he said, the unacknowledged legislators of the world describes the secret police, not the poets. And yet he seems to have thought a lot about the role of a poet, especially in times of historical crisis. So where was he? Was he just uh, being modest and kind of unassuming when he was talking about it? Or did he really wrestle with this idea that that maybe poetry might be impotent or not powerful enough to take on some of the crises of the day? Yeah, those are both great quotes, of course. The second sort of directed at Shelley. Mm, But to say that poetry makes nothing happen is not the same as saying that it's impotent. Mm. Um, The poem that you're quoting for the first quote, Poetry Makes Nothing Happen, is in memory of W.B. Yeats. And it goes on to say in the same stanza that poetry is a way of happening. Mm. Right. So poetry makes nothing happen. It's a way of happening, a mouth. But there's so much to say about this, but maybe one way to respond briefly is to say that poetry happens 
And as a happening, as an event, it's incorporated into the world of happenings where it may well make something happen. So not in an intentional causal relation, but through the way it speaks to people and to quote another line from another of Auden's elegies, the way that it becomes a whole climate of opinion. And and this happened, for example, with Auden's poem, Funeral Blues, which was recited in the movie Four Weddings and a Funeral by one of the characters for his gay lover, whose eulogy is a declaration of their marriage under conditions where that marriage was forbidden. And James Obergefell, whose case before the Supreme Court set into law the right of people to marry a partner of their choosing, in his account of that, this poem, Funeral Blues, and seeing it in the movie Four Weddings and a Funeral, played a pivotal role in the case for marriage equality. So there's a case where poetry made something happen, but it was never Auden's intention when he wrote Funeral Blues as a kind of vile cabaret piece to have it feature prominently in the case for marriage equality, and yet it did. I mean, similarly, he talks a little bit about the invention of romantic love by the troubadours of Provence, right? that romantic love emerged from the invention of a new genre of song. It wasn't their intention to change the face of love in the Western world, but but they did. Mm. And was he setting out to do this? Was that part of his motivation? What Did he think that he could change people that way? Or is it just that he was so devoted to honesty and, and sincerity and, and trying to, to locate the human spirit and be as empathetic as possible and so on? And, and so people have just found the, the importance of his poetry because it's resonated with them after he did the intellectual work and, and the artistic work in order to put those words down on the page. Yeah, I think probably the the latter. Mm-hmm. It might seem sort of surprising given the portraits and caricatures of Auden, especially later in life as this kind of dotty old man yeah. who described his face as looking like a wedding cake that's been <laughs> left out in the rain walking around <laughs> in bedroom slippers yes. in the snow because his bunions were hurting him and so on. But it might be strange, but you know, I agree very much with Arendt, who in her eulogy, very moving eulogy for Auden, said there was nothing so admirable about him as his sanity, the sort of firm sanity of his mind. And you describe that, I think, as honesty, and they're connected. I think that he tried always to be true to and honor the subject at hand. And because he thought of his poetic practice in terms of craftsmanship as a worker, he had a kind of humility before the experiences, the objects, the constraints of the form that what he wrote has a kind of integrity Mm. that might not be the result had he kind of made a decision, I'm going to try to affect people in this way. No, I'm going to turn myself over to the truth of whatever it might be and articulate it in the best way that I can. And then what the consequences of that are, we leave to the ways that to each individual reader. That is beautifully put. I'm tempted to end there, but I did want to ask you about a few historical figures and get your take on what they meant for Auden. And why don't we start with Voltaire? So what does he represent for Auden? Voltaire represents, obviously, the engaged writer. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's a kind of interesting example among Auden's portraits where some other figures that he wrote about, the portrait is divided between reviews or essays, prose essays, and a poem. Mm. And the figure as he's presented, Voltaire in this case, differs in the two presentations. So Auden was working on Voltaire 
in the late 30s, and he wrote a poem called Voltaire Fernet that was contemporaneous with a review that he wrote of two biographies that came out at about that time about Voltaire. And in the review of the two books by uh, Torian Noyes, I think were the names, Alfred Torian, he described Voltaire as unexpectedly a great proponent of social democracy. Mm. And in the poem, that Voltaire appears, but more significantly, Voltaire appears as a poet divided against himself, Mm. right? And through that self-division, poetry and the status of poetry and some of the perplexities and conundrums that Auden was wrestling with at that time and throughout his life emerge. So poetry is divided between what in the poem is called verse, which is sort of bad. Uh, It's politically engaged, not very memorable, lousy verse. Mm. And on the other hand, stellar song, which is luminous, but disconnected from the suffering that's also described in the poem, the burning, you know, the boiling of children, (laughs) all of the kind of political horrors. Right. Okay. Next up, Freud. (laughs) (laughs) When did Auden start to wrestle with Freud and, and how did it impact his thinking and his poetry? Yeah, Auden was interested in Freud and other physicians and psychologists from a very early age. His father, Auden's father, was a you know was a doctor, and psychoanalysis was just in the air, and it was in his home. Um, and you'll find you know sort of scattered throughout Auden's writings, lots and lots of sort of references to Freud, jokes about Freud reflections ever since Freud, the dumbest brain you can see that if you forget to show up for lunch, you know, you actually hate this person. Or Mm. if you worry that your boyfriend's going to get hit by a bus, you actually don't like your boyfriend, right? So like, there's a lot of pop psychoanalysis that's scattered throughout his work. But in another way, Auden, I, I would say, didn't particularly wrestle with Freud, although he wrote both a poem about him and a number of review essays, Auden was very, very taken by the monumental three-volume biography published by another psychoanalyst and colleague of Freud's, Ernest Jones, that Mm. was published in the mid-50s. And Auden reviewed each of those volumes. But I would say that during this period, he was reflecting much more on the biography than on any of Freud's work, either his major theories or any of the technical vocabulary. And what I think he was most interested in was the description of the foundational moment of psychoanalysis that's recounted in the biography when Freud stopped being a biologist of the mind and started to talk to people. Mm. So for Auden, once Freud started talking and and listening to people, he entered the historical world, a sometimes horrible, always messy place where instead of unimpeachable scientificity and natural causation, there are mixed motives where what you believe to have happened can be as significant as what actually happened and so on. So instead of particular events, and this is why he calls what of says the history of a historian, Mm. He sees Freud as a historian. Instead of particular events being tokens of a general law available to statistical explanation, they're singular facts. And as singular facts, they claim our attention and our love. And, And that was what for Auden was so enticing, interesting, worth reflecting on about Freud. I mean, it's, it's sort of nuts in these four different review essays. There's like no mention of polymorphous perversity, the castration complex, you right, know, no mention right. of the speculative writings, the battle between Eros and Thanatos or civilization and its discontent. Right? It's all about Freud departing his Hemholtzian faith and becoming a historian. Yeah. Okay. Last figure, 
And maybe we're, maybe we did this in reverse order, but Karl Marx. Marx. Okay. I'm not sure that I'm in a position to work through Auden's relation to Marxism, which, you know, could be another book of its own. But I guess what I'd say is that Auden never lost a certain kind of historical materialism. Mm -hmm. He thought of material conditions as fundamental. So from that perspective, he was always a Marxist, Mm -hmm. but he didn't have confidence in the Communist Party, right? His experience in Spain was disheartening, and obviously the developments in Russia were horrifying. But Auden was always on the left, always, right? He wasn't among, in Jameson's formulation, the modernists as fascists. Mm. So I've sifted through like the thousands of pages of his seven volumes of prose, you know, heroically gathered and edited by Edward Mendelssohn. And nowhere is there even the slightest, rightest dimension to his thought, right? He's nostalgic sometimes. He's appreciative of tradition. But with respect to right politics, he was utterly allergic, which really does distinguish him from so many of his modernist contemporaries above all, you know, Pound and Elliot. Right. Um, So, yeah, that's what I would say about that. Yeah. Did he... He did have a wonderful, in homage to Cleo, I'll just tell you, I think he had this wonderful clarihue of Marx. When Karl Marx found the phrase financial sharks, he sang a to diem in the British Museum. It almost seems like, though, with with examples like Freud and Marx, for someone like Auden, it it seems like he could use their example as kind of a, a springboard for his own thought. That he was he was a clear eyed enough thinker and a deep enough thinker that he didn't need to follow them religiously or slavishly, right. but he instead could say. Right. I like the way they're looking at these concepts, but I can use that yeah. and look look at them for myself. And he did that with, I mean, he, he was absolutely voracious reader and totally promiscuous in the things that he read. And, you know, having worked on him for so many years, he'll reference something or he'll spend some time writing about something. And so, as a scholar, I'll go back and I'll find whatever it is that he's referencing and read it and be like, oh my God, this is what you're talking about. And the reason that that experience repeats itself so frequently is that he was able to disentangle the important point from whatever larger grand explanatory scheme it was attached to. I mean, this is true of a lot of the historiography that that he was reading at the time. You know, he read these kind of totally indigestible, crazy people like Rosenstock Husey, who wrote history backwards, (laughs) (laughs) but nevertheless extracted something very, very important from their works. And I think that that's true, again, with other kinds of figures, Marx, Freud, Voltaire. Voltaire, Auden's Voltaire is very different from, for example, Pound's Voltaire, Mm. uh, Auden sees him as a great Democrat and does not at all identify with or appreciate the the Voltaire who is an anti-Semite and for that reason very important to pound. Mm. Okay. Well let's leave things there. I I feel like Auden is a, a poet. I I love reading his poetry and mm. I learning more about him only deepens it for me and I would recommend everyone to yeah. to check out your book as a way of helping to appreciate just how good Auden was. The book is called Auden and the Muse of History. The author is our guest Susanna Younga Gottlieb. Thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. Okay, there we go. My thanks to Franz Kafka, that nervous little butterfly, for his contributions to today's podcast and to W.H. Auden. And of course, to our guest, Professor Susanna Young-Ah-Gottlieb. Her book on Auden is available now in bookstores Real and Cyber. Not that cyber isn't real, but you know what I mean, tangible and intangible. Places you enter with your body and ones you see with your eyes on the screen. Speaking of your body... Your body has ears, doesn't it? Hope so. And so you might want to know what we have coming up on the horizon. How about Hogwarts 
for Homicide, written by a man who wrote a very famous song. A song you probably know. This is a love story. The song is a love story with an O. Henry twist. Well, this man writes mysteries too, very successfully. And now has a budding new series that he's bringing out. We will talk to him about that. Also on the horizon, how about Elizabeth Bishop? Finally, 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 we'll talk to her biographer soon. And even sooner, Goethe. Yes, I know you've been waiting. <laughs> you've been waiting for this. I know, people. Well, I'm glad to finally deliver. Got an email the other day from someone who said, 477 episodes, Jack, and no Emil Zola. Come on. <laughs> okay. Our list is long, people. There, there have been a lot of writers. <laughs> we can't help that. Okay. But Goethe, we are, we are almost ready to bring that one out. Our friend Richie Robertson, expert in German literature and Goethe in particular, will be here to help us understand Goethe and his importance. And we'll look at early black Americans taking a new approach to four famous writers with our guest, a professor from Iowa. So please do subscribe. We'll have lots of good stuff coming your way in the next few weeks and months. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>